Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. All right, Drew, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Jeez, I really had to think about that. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, we're doing it remote, mate. You're in the office. You've got the um, Inside Network logo behind you. I'm in a different type of office. Yeah, we've got we've, had, we've actually, like normally when, when you just sit down and do this, we just talk and we just try and get through every question. We try and smash through them again and again and again. Um, this time, we're actually adding some structure to it. So we've been sent a bunch of questions not too um, much structure. Not too much. Not too much. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we thought we might do is just kind of like go behind the scenes. Like, what have you been doing lately uh, before we dive into questions? And by the oh, way, I should mention what we're going to talk about. We've got some really interesting technology companies. We're talking about 60-40 portfolios, leveraged ETFs, equal weight ETFs, US versus Australian ETFs, how to get involved in the investments industry, um, currency hedging. So there's a bit. But anyway. Um, what have you been working on? Everything. Business is uh, good, crazy. There's uh, yeah, plenty going on in markets, plenty of opportunities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you joined us up in Noosa last week. You think? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was Noosa, so who knows? I was like, the uncertainty there just kept me hanging. Like. <laughs> we, no, we, well, we, well, it's not a round table, is it? We ran an asset allocation uh, forum up in Noosa at the Sofitel. Yeah. And obviously, when you go to Noosa, you get torrential rain for three days. So allowed everyone yeah. to everyone to focus on on investments and markets and it was pretty pretty dreary and pretty negative um, mm. ideas coming out of that but yeah so some some of the leading advisors in the country joined us uh and heard presentations from a range of range of groups looked at like fixed income modern monetary policy what's happening in the uk uh, we even had a special uh deep diver kind of explaining how to deal with stress which is probably important in invest yeah. anyone that's investing at the moment so yeah, actually, um, went to Peter Kuravita's web- uh, website restaurant as well. Um, all the surveys said that was the highlight of the whole thing. <laughs> really, I thought the um, the diving dude he was super interesting. Um, had to hold your breath for so long. Were you the um, Were you the person who, uh, when they get yeah. cut off on the freeway, chases down the person in front of them? Or you the- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, yeah. definitely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was heaps of fun. So maybe. People don't know this, Drew, but um, what is the Inside Network, 
right? Like, just let's just start with that because people know the Rask brand. Yeah. Yeah. So it's probably a similar version to Rask. It's a community of financial advisors and institutional investors we've tried to build over the last three or four years. And the, the entire premise of it is to bring people together to collaborate and, and discuss and improve the quality of investments and investment management that's going on in Australia. Mm. I think is maybe that's a cliff yeah. version, cliff note version. Yeah, no, it's super cool. So if you're a financial advisor or you're a fund manager or something like that, it's basically about bringing everyone closer together. Um, and yeah, they, we, we actually, I don't know, I think I told you this, maybe not, but we actually aired the the first of those recordings uh, with Craig Ferguson. We did that uh, on the podcast. We're recording this on Thursday. We aired it on Wednesday. And Craig is a great example of a guy that was in the crowd at yeah. this thing. So he wasn't even presenting. He was just in the crowd and gives you an idea of kind of the depth of knowledge amongst the community. So some asset consultants, there were some yeah. economists and financial advisors and a yeah, broad range of people. Mm. So if you are a, a financial advisor, you're a consultant, a high net worth investor or family office, um, yeah, you can learn more about the Inside Network on any of the, the websites like um, insideadvisor.com.au or even just send us an email and we'll put you in touch. But, mate, yeah, so we, we did that. Um, then uh, you flew back to Melbourne. I, I flew to Sydney and we went and did some filming up there. I did a bunch of interviews with like lots of different people, really interesting people, uh, founders, uh, which will all, they'll all appear on this podcast in the next few weeks. Um, I spoke to even Effie Zahos. She, she's appearing on the other show. The Money Finance Mag podcast. or? Yeah, Money Mag, uh, Canstar, um, InvestSmart. So she's kind of like, yeah, I think she's on either Today Show or Sunrise. I should know that, but I don't know. Um, so I met a bunch of really interesting people. And um, I mean, there's so many highlights that I could have, but one of them was probably... Uh, interviewing a guy called Wayne Hooper, who's the um, the CEO of a company called Laserbond, which we, you and I've talked about in passing before. Yeah, he's never he's never done a long form interview in his life, and he's the CEO of this company, been there since 1994. So you know, talk about a someone that's kind of just remained hidden that whole time. Um, and then we had Finfest on Saturday, which was run by Equity Mates, which was heaps of fun. You stole my shirt too. It's too shirt. You know what? Actually, <laughs> um, the reason that I took that pineapple shirt. Um, was because uh, I, I had see this is the the black rast top you can see this on video if anyone that's watching are not watching I'm just wearing a black rast top but I also I got about fifty of them in grey and uh, up in Sydney because I wasn't washing I was I was wearing I was wearing this and this and whatever and then I had to swap so I went and got the grey ones out and I was going to take that to the event but because it was hot. I was like, well, I can't wear this because I'm going to have sweat patches in front of hundreds of people. <laughs> so then I put the pineapple top over at the front and everyone's like, oh, I love that. So I just kept it going and, um, yeah, it kind of worked. It's um, disarming. It's great. It is, you know, amongst um, a room. We did this because we're talking to investment consultants, you and I. We were rocking up in ice cream T-shirts and pineapples and stuff. Uh, and it just really just set the scene for a lot of these really technical people to just chill out a bit. As but, a tendency um, to take ourselves too seriously, isn't it? That's, and that's what you're kind of trying to break. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it was heaps of fun um, to even do that. I mean, yes, FinFest was a huge experience, about 1,700 people and lots of good uh, speakers and personalities in the rooms. So, yeah, I heard the guys do it again next year and – uh, it was he just heaps of fun to meet a lot of people that follow the show. So uh, keep your eyes peeled. But finally, I might just add, <clears throat> and Drew, I'm throwing you under the bus here because you don't know about this. Um, 
we are hosting a bit of a meetup in Melbourne in December. So I'm hoping Professor Drew I'm sponsoring, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, Drew's sponsoring it. Uh, he, he he didn't give a choice in the matter. He's sponsoring it. So what a part is part of financial planning is sponsoring it. Uh, so go and check that out. Um, that'll be in early to mid December, obviously before the Christmas rush. So um, it looks like we've just confirmed it will be at the Victorian State Library oh, in the Melbourne CBD. So it'll be heaps of fun um, and a good place. There'll be drinks, uh, there'll be food, all that stuff. So keep your eyes peeled. But, mate, let's get into it. Let's crack on. So um, we've got a bunch of questions that were sent in. Remember, you can send a question uh, on any of the RASC websites. Just go to the Ask a Question button, link, whatever it is in the in the menu, uh, and you'll be able to do it there. Select the Australian Investors Podcast. So maybe we'll start with one of yours, Drew. Um, a question that came in real quick was, why would a, why would you use an active funds ma- fund manager over a, a passive? Or like, would you combine them? That's the ultimate question, isn't it? So, I mean, a lot of a lot of people and anyone, you know, initially engaged with investing just sees low costs, fantastic, and, and and finance is probably one of the only industries where you can get the average for nearly free. So, mm. like medicine, you don't you know don't, you don't necessarily want the average; you want better than average. But um, uh, <laughs> you can buy the average for like 008 percent. But the the question is at the moment: Are you comfortable with the returns that are going to come from the index? And the mm. index is constructed a certain way. And what we kind of see, there's two probably answers we'd have to this: is the environment we're in at the moment hasn't is is incredibly difficult, di- different to the one we've seen for the last ten or twenty years. So, interest rates falling have helped every other asset class. There's a chance that you know some sectors will outperform and some countries will outperform, and that's why you might use an active manager in that part. And then one of the things I noticed this week meeting with clients was. Uh, with our Atchison business, which I think you, we've talked about as well, uh, we've got we're getting more negotiating power to the point that a lot of we can actually get access to active managers at similar prices to what uh, a passive manager might be, and particularly somewhere like you know emerging markets or smaller companies where where you know a market cap weighted or a benchmark doesn't necessarily give you the best exposure either. Would you say, I think we've talked about this a lot, but there's a, there's a few different markets where active versus passive is kind of a bit more clear cut. This is something we spoke yeah. about with Will Hamilton and Noosa, actually. Yeah. So which are the some of the markets where it makes more sense to be active over passive? There'd be a few. Like, I mean, concentration risk is always a, is always a challenge. You know, something like Apple and BHP just dominate an index. Um, but that doesn't mean you can extract that much value from the S&P or the ASX by going active. Uh, but definitely smaller companies where there's less research coverage and there's a big, broad, like 2,000 companies in that index. Um, there's there's room to active. And I think when you look at the S&P data on number of active managers that outperform the benchmark, it actually increases for smaller companies compared to, you know, I think the average smaller company active strategy outperforms a benchmark where it's the opposite for large cap um, private markets and then kind of less not less transparent but less covered so groups like areas like China emerging markets where there's you know, significantly more inefficiencies um, less research and less companies in in the benchmark yeah I think that's um, it I think there's like two big questions that people know that like they want to have portfolios are exposed to shares, to property, to whatever they want, right? Bonds. Then it's okay. Which is the most efficient expression of this? So which is the best expression, I should say. So when I think about expressions, I think, do I want listed or unlisted? Do I want currency hedge or unhedged? And do I want um, active or passive? 
Yeah. You can have both. You can have all of those in a portfolio for sure. But which of those do you want for each market, I think, is a key consideration. So for me, um, I basically agree with what it, everything you said there. Um, actually, that kind of just brings in another question that we got, <laughs> which is um, which is the 60-40 portfolio. Does, so what and two, does it is it still valid? Because there was a lot of talk about this amongst consultants, obviously with interest rates being so high, inflation being meaningful. A lot of people are saying that 60-40 portfolio won't work anymore. Bonds are basically done. Um, equities are in for a slower market. So I, I reckon I completely it. disagree. I'd say it's going to work now better than it did for the last five years. Well, yeah. That's easy now that bonds have fallen. I mean, the concept is, uh, I, what I've found is no one actually invests the 40-60. It's just a concept that people bring up to tell you how bad returns have been. So 40-60, the way most people talk about it is that you 40% of your portfolio is in bonds and just benchmark bonds, so mm. essentially government, and 60% in in the ASX 200 or the S&P 500. So it's just putting together two asset classes and what they've done over time. I mean, long-term, the returns have been something like 10%, I think, for that. But short-term, because both equities and bonds have fallen in value at the same time, it's been incredibly difficult. But mm. I, I haven't found an advisor or a group that strictly has a 40-60 portfolio anymore. You know, yeah, that, right. Either you're making asset allocation decisions by adding smaller companies or emerging markets or having some floating rate fixed income, not just buying the, the index. So. so you reckon, so just to confirm, you reckon that the 60 portfolio is like just something that people put up as uh, opposed to like, like a look, reference portfolio? Yeah. Yeah. Look how much better we've done. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it's the easiest one to beat at the moment because both parts of it fell. Um, yeah. You know, doing anything different, slightly different, even holding in some extra cash and you've outperformed. Um, mm. It's a, you know, it's a relic of the, I think the 70s when it was, when it was really initially built. Right. And I think most people think more uh, in more detail about how they're constructing portfolios now. Even, you know, DIY investors at home, you might add a high yield Australian equities and a... Um, Europe versus international. And that just breaks that completely. You've got more diversification. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I agree for what it's worth. Um, <laughs> you can't disagree with me. No, 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 no. I, I kind of do. I agree. It's pretty hard to. So if you've got like the 60 40 portfolio, right? As a concept, I think the 60 40 portfolio works because it sets the grounding of what probably a balanced portfolio would look like for a lot of Aussies yeah. in that. 40% are risk off or like lower risk assets and 60% are growth focused assets. So for me, that's a good starting point for anyone. And even if you're a bit older, like a lot of people think you need to go, you know, to 20% growth assets, it's probably too low for a lot of people. Um, and so I think as a starting point, it's really good. And I think it's what you do from that. Like you've talked on the show about how you have like four different buckets. So you've got, even though it's like 60, 40, you would have two buckets within the 40 and two buckets within the 60. Um, and for me, I kind of lean to that as well. Um, it's, there's this whole thing in the middle called alternatives, which, which some people have a hundred percent of their portfolio and alternatives. Like obviously that's not for everyone, but we've, we spoke to some people that just research and just, use alternatives what would be considered alternatives in a traditional sense um and so yeah i mean for a starting point 60 40 works um i would not like over the last 10 years maybe in the last 10 years last five years it's traditional 60 40 portfolio would have been 
bolstered by the US markets. Falling interest rates. Falling interest rates. But can you do that going forward? I'd probably, like, that would be a pretty scary portfolio to be in right now. Um, Maybe, I mean, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but but I am anyway. Um, Maybe, if you think about it, um, maybe the... Just gonna, I'm just going to lose people at this point, but maybe if like the duration risk actually plays, uh, you know, actually plays out from here, and that maybe government bonds all of a sudden look interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean the whole reason you know? the 4060 portfolio has done well is because you know interest rates fell from seven percent to zero, and mm. that increased the value of bonds, and bonds basically returned seven or eight percent per annum, and then one bad year, and it's you know the concept's broken. So I think all these things, when you're building a portfolio, you're never going to just do two. Assets. I think people are more and more thinking about, you know, where what asset classes do I want to be more exposed to? What am I still comfortable with technology? Would I like to have more diversification there? But yeah, it's a good starting point as in asset allocation. Um, but no one actually, I don't know any professional or groups that invest solely on a forty sixty anymore. No, um, I don't. Um, there, although there, there was <laughs> some discussion. Without changing it. Without uh, FinFest, that you could get away with um, Uh maybe one stock and one ETF. Um, Maybe. Uh, Depending on your risk profile. (laughs) Depending on your risk profile. Yeah, you have to be off the charts. Um, So, yeah, I mean, really interesting. So if someone asks what a 60-40 portfolio, it's 60% growth, 40% defensive assets. A question that I got through on Twitter, which is a fantastic question, and one I got asked, like, I don't know how many times on the weekend. Uh, Benjamin sent me a, a tweet. So thanks, Benjamin. And he just said, hi, mate. I hope you're well. Um, I'm keen to get a start in the finance industry as an investment analyst. I'm an accountant. been doing it for 12 years and been investing for a bit over two years and loving every minute of it. Just wanted to reach out as I'm trying to chat to as many people in the industry about the way they got started and what sort of advice they would have for me trying to get into the industry. Any advice you could give me? I'd be so appreciative. Well, thanks, Ben. I did actually send you, Ben, I know you know this, but for everyone else, um, there is a thing that we did not too long ago called the Investor Bootcamp. It's like a free investment program. It was run through this podcast. Uh, The Investor Bootcamp combines all of my favorite interviews and all of my favorite books, blogs, resources, and and what have you into one Google document. So I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, but I, I got this asked this question a lot of the week, on the weekend, Drew. Obviously, um, you know, we're pretty fortunate, you and I, we can come on here and record some podcasts and a lot of people like to listen to it, which is fantastic. And people want to kind of like emulate not just the podcast, but also what we do for a living. Um, I guess for me, there are probably three things that I would do to try and stand out from the crowd. Uh, the first thing is I would try and publish something. So I'll just try and create some type of repository or archive of my thoughts uh, because an employer wants to know if they hire you as an investor that you understand investing. So what's the easiest way to do that? Just prove it. Um, And so you can start a blog. You can jump on Twitter and try and find people and communicate. You can do threads or deep dives. And otherwise, you can join Strawman. Strawman's that uh, free website. Uh, it's got a premium version as well, but it allows you to post your research and communicate with others. It's created by Andrew Page. An extra thing that I would do is uh, probably, I would probably try and use things like Twitter to try and engage with financial experts on their level. So this is something I was trying to emphasize on the weekend that if you want to catch up with a fund manager or you want to hear from them, you want to talk with them, whatever, it can't be a cost to them. Like it can't be like they're helping you out all the time. 
So what you've got to do is basically offer them value. And one of the ways you could do that is you could publish some research on a company that's don't do buy, hold, sell because of the advice rules, but maybe just publish some thoughts on a company. Let's say what we're talking about today, technology one. And you publish that and then you go on Twitter and you see if there's a fund manager that's talking about it. You can engage with them in the conversation be like, hey, I've written this up and blah, blah, blah. Don't try and sell them on it, but just let them know that you know what you're talking about. And then eventually you might take, you know, go, do you want to catch up for coffee or do you want to exchange notes or something like this? And it's a really good way to communicate with them on their level. And I think just with, sorry, mate, go on. And find where your interest is too. Like some people like technical. I hate technical. Some people yeah. like fundamentals. Some people would say go and read Benjamin Graham's, you know, no. Intelligent Investor and all these books. But most of them, they're great books, but not necessarily relevant to the environment we're in at the moment. So where's your interest? If you're not interested in certain parts, you're never going to, you know, mm. dedicate the amount of time you need. It's almost finding your niche in all business, finding your niche and trying to leverage and dominate that niche. Yes, agree. Because you've got to stand out in the crowd, right? So yeah, everyone's um, going to have a CFA. Everyone's going to have a diploma of you know advanced applied finance. So yeah, you got to, and that's yeah. It used to be the case that there's a chart that shows stock uh, CFAs per stock in the United States, and it's just going up and to the right, like the number of CFA charter holders there are to the number of stocks, and it's ultra competitive. I think as a um, an accountant. Uh, to Ben's question, he's got a very unique insight in that he's been working with a lot of private businesses. Yeah. And I would, as an investor, I would probably try and use that as an advantage and try and find investors that are involved in private markets. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's that's a huge advantage because private markets, we've talked about this 101 times, is like a frontier for a lot of private equity firms, for a lot of listed investment companies, uh, for all these different types. So um, yeah, it's great that you want to get involved in the industry, Ben. Um, keep it going. Build that network. Uh, you're doing the right thing. Drew, would you do, if you were doing, you're obviously a chartered uh, financial planner, cert- certified financial planner. If you were to do your time again, would you do the CFA or would you stick I with tried. the you, I tried. Is this another one putting me in it? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I tried, was unemployed, failed miserably, only passed uh, one part of the exam. Uh, but yeah, I think if you want to be in investments, um, I mean, we engage other groups to help with the the real detail, and they're all CFAs. But if you want to be really deep in investments, you have to you have to commit to that. Incredibly hard, though. Yeah, yeah, super hard. Um, I'd probably try and stand out in other ways. To be honest, I would do a PhD in yeah. bio, biochemistry. <laughs> yeah, then just work for some sort of life sciences investment yeah. company. No, but seriously, I would. I think if I was to do my time again, I've said this before. I would try and i would learn commerce but i would also try and learn some other skill um not only as a plan b but also just as a variant perception on what's offered in the market so you know a lot of um investment banks and that type of stuff want you to have things like law degrees or engineering or or whatever um we actually just had a question come through live drew from martin um saying like with uh, the defensive side of a portfolio keep money in an offset account versus a home loan Versus government bonds. Does it make sense? I think so. It depends on if you've got outstanding debt and your interest rate's going up, yeah, then generally not personal advice. But um, you've got to make that a call. And then is it non-deductible debt or deductible debt against investment assets? That's that's the other question you'd ask. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, the way we'd see is in the interest rate, if you're putting money in an offset account against an interest rate, that's a guaranteed return equal to the interest rate plus the tax that you'd yep. save on making that payment. So, 
yeah, you know, and that's any, a, any guarantees. I've talked a lot about this recently. Like, we still don't know what interest rates are doing. So, on a bond portfolio, you still don't know for sure um, if you're going to expose yourself to higher interest rates. So, um, versus an offset account and a term deposit is probably the next thing after that. Like a term deposit, you can get a four percent term deposit, lock it in for a few years. Yeah, like that makes sense. That just yeah, makes yeah. sense. So, um, for a lot of people that are in retirement, have a even, so basically it goes like this: if you have a mortgage, you can use an offset account. If you don't have a mortgage but you want that, um, you can look at doing a term deposit because you have no what we call duration risk. Um, and then we kind of do, but let's not think about it. Um, and then thirdly, you might look at like alternative fixed income sources. So like low duration uh, fixed income. And then finally, like way down the bottom, you've got government bonds. So um, that people mix- will, And people will, will, uh, will say inflation though. And the yeah. challenge of inflation, yeah, it's 6% at the moment. But honestly, I don't see it being 6% for the next 10 years. So if it goes back to 2 and you're getting 4 or 5 in a turn deposit, well, that's actually pretty solid. If it's still at 6 and you're technically losing money on it, then yeah. yeah. But I can't see it staying elevated for that long. Yeah, you would have – yeah, I mean, persistent inflation is probably a different question. I don't have really the expertise to make a forecast on that. But persistent inflation is probably something that people should be mindful of. But – whether it stays at these levels is a, is a different question. Um, thanks, Martin, for that question. Um, okay, so we've got some uh, questions that have come through. Uh, some great questions. Um, I might just really quickly answer this one. Dog says, why doesn't Liontown Resources get more love? Um, long-term investment. It's because dog on it. Um, dog on it? Yeah, dog on it. <laughs> dog on it. Uh, yeah, dog on it. Um, that's because... Uh, <laughs> This is a very kind of like speculative company. A lot of these um, lithium style companies uh, and any type of company that is involved in exploration and mining is kind of at the pointy end. So the, the difference between basically everyone and Pilbara Minerals is that Pilbara Minerals is super cash flow positive yeah. and everyone else wants to be Pilbara Minerals. So and this is just um, a momentum when lithium's running, everyone will jump into this. There's a lot of momentum yeah. in day trading and, and shorter term kind of signal trading that tends to drive markets. That's why it fluctuates massively. I say that's why people don't like it as much because it's so volatile most of the time. Mm. Yeah. Um, the, so there was actually one thing that I was going to just put you on the spot, Drew. I feel like one of these days you're going to put me on the spot. I think I'll maybe try. you have, maybe you have once. But, I did when uh, we're in Noosa. Yeah, yeah. just in the deep end talking about like <laughs> bond convexity, and I'm like, oh god, change direction. <laughs> um, so uh, there was a I, I ran a screen on the ASX, uh, and I was looking at self wealth data for this too. Thanks to our sponsors at Self Wealth, nine dollar fifty trading. Um, so. I was running a screen on the ASX, right? This is the screen. So it can't be speculative, like tiny little micro caps. Um, and that there has to have a positive return on investment. That's important because then you exclude all like the lithium stocks and stuff that are nowhere near profit- profitability, which I'd be interested to know. Can you name any one of the companies over the past 10 years that would be in the top five based on share price returns? West Farmers? No. Think like Ooh. I'll give you. I'll give you a hint. Actually, BHP. Four, three oh, out of the five are technology, and two out of oh, the five. Oh, oh, oh. That and, two, and two out of the five are financial. Two out of the five two are financial. 
And three out of the f- five are tech. You are putting me. I'm I'm getting embarrassed here. Well, if it's no, tech, no. it's got to be like car sales. Realestate.com.au. They were wise tech. Oh, close. Wise tech was close. Not quite wise tech. The Appen. thing is, though, um, not quite happen. Um, Altium, I think, Altium, is the one. Yeah. yeah. See, the thing is, all of those companies were already big 10 years ago. Well, not already big, but they were meaningful. Um, scaling in terms of yeah. cash flow. Yeah. So financially, they're probably the best performers. But in terms of stock price, we've got Altium, Pinnacle Investment Management. Ah, uh, yeah, scale. Yeah. Polynovo. And this Hub is one that 24. I think you I think this one you, you own, which is Australian Ethical. Oh, yeah. Not Zip. I was kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about that on the show anymore. Um, and then Objective Corporation, which is a we company. We shouldn't talk about Australian Ethical too. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that was really interesting to look at those companies. Um, That's a really low, low cost of business, really. And you've got Scalable Pinnacle and Australian Ethical. Essentially, your, your mm. expenses stay flat and, you, and as your assets go up, you, you can make more money. Absolutely. What I found was really interesting about these companies, it's when you get to number six, it's really interesting, which is Dicker Data, which does like um, IT sales and all that sort of stuff, which is a more capital intensive business. Um, And you keep going down and some other names in there, like Aristocrat Leisure, um, businesses that you wouldn't think are capable of like 1000% returns over 10 years, but um, really interesting list. Anyway, um, two of the companies that uh, we... We got asked about. I'll bring them up now. So this is from One Up on Bridge Street, uh, which is a great name. It's a play on Sydney and on Peter Lynch's book One Up on Wall Street. Uh, they say really I enjoyable. It was Bridge Street in Beechworth, no? I wasn't Beechworth. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> As in Beechworth is Beechworth like rural Victoria? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Bridge, oh, that's Bridge Road. That's Bridge Road. Yeah. I've got beer on my mind. It's 440. So. Yeah, it's 440. Um, really enjoy listening to you and Drew. I have a small portion of my portfolio dedicated to individual stocks. Two on my watch list are Technology One, TNE, and um, Objective Corp, OCL. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what differentiates these two from another and which you prefer longer term. I'm happy to riff on this if, unless you have any anything to go on. No, I tend to not stray outside the 200, so I'll just cherry pick what you say. Okay. Well, uh, Rodney's did to say live on YouTube, he said it's Bridge Street where the ASX lives. <laughs> not so. <laughs> yeah. Not Beachworth. Right. <laughs> not Beachworth. Okay, yeah, Objective Corp. So it does, we've spoken about this with Claude Walker on the show before. Objective Corp, one of the ASX's best performing companies. It's number five on my list of the best performers over the past 10 years. Objective Corp um, basically does software for councils and for corporates and that sort of stuff if you've got like document management if you've got um planning anything like that's involved in kind of like the bureaucracy you can use objective corp and um it's run by ceo tony wells who i believe owns about 65 percent of the company return of invested capital over 35 percent um been run for a long time used a combination of acquisitions and organic growth because once you get into these councils or whatever, you're not gonna, they're not going to take it out. Like There's just so much inertia to keep it in there. Um, so inside a run, that's probably the big, I guess it's like a, a, for some people that's a green flag and for other people that's like a, a bit of a red flag when it's 65%, that's a lot of insider ownership. So you basically, it's him against the world kind of thing because there's so much control there. Now, how does that differ to Technology One? So Technology One is 
it's got probably the most enviable track record on the ASX over the past 30 years. It's been growing revenue, earnings per share, and cash flow for the past 35 years, I think. Um, it's got a return on investor capital of 45%, which is fantastic. Um, it's actually number 15 on my list on the ASX's best performers. So it does um, enterprise resource planning software. So software for basically everything inside a university or some sort of corporate um, in Australia and the UK. It's so mission critical when we talk about software being sticky. It's got, I believe it's about 99% retention. Yeah. So imagine being a business and you keep 99% of your companies. And if, if you're going into small caps, this is a kind of company, maybe they're not that small, but these not are anymore, the, but yeah. 3.8 bills still yeah, mid cap, global mid yeah. probably. Yeah. These are the companies you, you want companies that pick a sector and don't dominate it, but have a real say in that sector and specialize somewhere. You don't want yeah. them trying to spray multiple sectors and be ultra competitive with, yeah. with too many different groups. Yeah, like the big tint cans of the world. Um, I don't know if you know that business, but um, you want to you want to have a business that kind of like if it doesn't dominate, it's like a winner in one of these industries. So the big change for technology one is coming from the push to the cloud. It's kind of like data three, if you know that business. Uh, it's where it's shifting clients to the cloud, and that brings with it SaaS revenue, so subscriptions. Um, but it also brought with it a change of accounting. Um, which a lot of people didn't like at the time. So you could look at the capitalized software. I think it was around about 2018, 2019. You look at the change in the financials. There's a meaningful change, which made it hard to kind of test that over time. Um, recently, the, CEO, uh, the executive chairman, who was a co-founder, stepped down from the board and he's going to take his live sum of money and go invest in venture capital. Still got one founder involved in the business, if I'm not mistaken, as a non-executive director. And the CEO has been with the company for a very long time. He actually was promoted internally, which is what I like to see. So long story short, the businesses are super impressive, still growing, got a long growth runway, insider ownership and alignment. They just come with a price tag. They're just both are quite expensive. Pretty so, big yeah. Yeah. So you just got to make a decision. Um, you've got to have these companies on your watch list and be ready to pounce. You know, for a very, very small position, I, I kind of like to take a very small position in these types of businesses because it's kind of like a buy-in. It's like a research stake. Like you buy a little bit and then it keeps you engaged. Um, I was chatting to Nathan Bell from The Intelligent Investor, another sponsor of the show, uh, the other day, and he believes that there's only 10 to 15 truly exceptional businesses on the ASX. I don't know if either of these two are in his list, but for me, they would be probably in my 10 to 20 best ASX companies. Um just because of the quality of the financials, basically no debt, net cash, fortress-like business models. So you have to pay for it. That's the challenge. And yeah. you put it on your shopping list and hold off. And you know, the question we're just talking to someone at the, like global multi-asset investor, mm. and the challenge at the moment is your your risk-free rate. So the the value on which everything's discounted has gone up significantly. A lot of mm. stocks have gone down seventy percent, even though their cash flow is increasing. So, the assumption is that if you're growing fast enough, you can offset the increase in the risk-free rate, but you don't know. So it almost takes a while for it to flush out, particularly when it's so insider-owned that you're not going to see the amount of trading that would that would result in a significant change in the valuation. Yeah, and that's it. So we've seen technology one just keep going up throughout yeah. this whole time, whereas yeah. um, Objective Corp's down thirty-one percent over the past year. I would just I would be starting to lick my lips at objective corp maybe once it gets down towards 10 bucks um so that's not a price target by the way it's just me saying like as it gets down towards that like that's where it gets more attempting um yeah. still got a PE ratio of 66 so you've got to justify a lot of growth 
um, especially now when markets are volatile. So um, something to keep in mind. Actually, Drew, before we get to the next question, we just have some real quick follow-up uh, from Zeddy. I said, how much financial modeling from your studies is used in investing? I heard Buffett never used the DCF, et cetera. Could you elaborate on this point? Um, I'm happy to field this if you want. Yeah, I mean, we employ asset consultants that do a hell of a lot of financial modeling to help build build portfolios and then rely on a lot of external research as well. So we don't do a lot internally. We'll do, you know, asset allocation and scenario analysis using tools, but I'm not building much on Excel spreadsheets yeah. anymore. Um, I, I'm obviously a bit more... Well, um, Python, isn't it? They use Python or something like Python that. Python for, yeah, like systematic stuff. But... um. I'm a bit more in the weeds than Drew because obviously Drew being a financial planner is mostly focused on like building wealth for clients and portfolios. I do that too, but in a different capacity. Um, I also love my individual stocks like the the last question that just come through from um, one up on Bridge Street. I reserve a part of my portfolio just for individual stocks um, because I love it. I love businesses basically. And so financial modeling, uh, Zeddy, so... I still like to crack open a spreadsheet and do a bit of financial modeling. Like I like to understand the the model, uh, the, the the way the margins will go over time, if the business can scale. I like to get that confidence in the financials too. Doing a DCF is not the holy grail. I think everyone will that knows how to use one will say that. But what it does for me is it, it forces me to check things. Um, we've also got a checklist. I don't know if that's available for free, Eddie, but it's definitely inside our RASCOR membership Uh nine dollars 99 a month to just pitch it to you but um i think that the checklist is available in there so it's only one part too yeah sorry yeah sorry yeah no i agree it's only one part like of all the i would spend more time doing the checklist and more time doing the actual just reading for sure than i would actually modeling Um, i've seen so many people who can get the you know the revenue their margin down to the perfect point and then the stock will fall 40 percent because of a hedging decision that the bank or because management or some bad corporate decision. So you can get all the modeling right and still have a bad investment. That's what the challenge is. That's why it's, it's always art and science, not art or science when it comes to investing. Yeah. Most of my work, and I think most of people's advantage in investing, and this is particularly true for long-term investing is not in the numbers. Yeah. Um, Because, you know, you, you'd be much better off getting the business right than you just, just even being in the general vicinity of like revenue in five years is really good. Yeah. So the only way you're going to get to that is if you know the business and the industry inside out. And um, that's why I like now uh, as a changing philosophy, I like to focus on between five and 15 companies and know heaps about those companies rather than is heaps a Kiwi term. Let's bring that in. Um, Sorry for anyone watching from the States. Uh, so I would rather focus on that than just try and have a view on everything and try and DCF everything in, in the universe. Like it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Anyway, great question. Um, next question comes from uh, Ron Burgundy. So the, someone of my vintage, clearly. <laughs> yeah, I love the show. Yeah. Um, what does San Diego mean? Now that's uh, that's not the question. Um, so yeah. Uh, so, Zeddy, you've said, really appreciate the response as a uni student. This really helps. Wonderful, Zeddy. Great. Oh, just so you know, Zeddy, you can go to the RASC Education website. Uh, let me know if you are a student. I'll give you a, a pass to our Value Investor Program. Uh, just send me an email via the contact forms. Uh, that will sort you out, as well as that um, Investor Boot Camp that's uh, in my Twitter bio. So, hey, legends, says Rod Burgundy. Interested on your thoughts on the ETF 
by Vanguard VAE. I'm currently using it for some diversification into Asia. All caps Asia, though, so I don't know. That's also that a beta product, isn't it? <laughs> that's also an ETF, so I was a bit confused. So, uh, Am mindful to keep my position size small at 5%? Performance has been poor over the last few years. Is this an ETF you would use for Asian exposure? Yeah, personally, we tend to prefer the iShares IAA, which is the top 50, but you're not going to go too wrong. You know, you're buying an Asia index X Japan as a kind of core exposure. Um, the difference is, I think that holds either 200 or 1,000 companies where the iShares Asia has 50. So you've got a more a more concentrated exposure. So TSMC, for example, is like 10% of the iShares versus three or four in the um, Vanguard option. I mean, we generally, we have a couple of tilts in our asset location and Asia is one of them. It's quite uh, lonely there at the moment. Hmm. But um, the way we talk about it is if you think 10 years from now, where's the growth in the global economy going to come from? It's clearly coming from Asia. And how do you position for that? Um, and I know the biggest, one of the biggest impacts on the sector or the region at the moment has been the strength of the US dollar. So stay patient. <laughs> it's probably the- uh, I would say, so here's, I'm just going to disagree with you for the sake of disagreeing oh. with you. <laughs> I would, um, no, but actually... Um, I actually think that for a lot of this stuff in Asia, I would prefer active management, to be honest. Yeah. Um, not, you know, you can have both for sure. We would say that on the show all the time. But I just think, like, I don't know. I just, I, I, I just prefer strong property rights. I prefer strong governments, stable governments. Um, Fine edge. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, the the ETF, it's more of, it's not an ETF. I've got to stop saying that. It's not an ETF. It's a listed fund. It's um, the Femex ETF by Fidelity, you can buy it. I said ETF again. Managed fund, um, you can buy it on the ASX. Um, it's more concentrated, 40 to 50 positions. Again, you pay an active fee of just under 1%. Um, you know, that that ETF, Jesus, I just said it again. Um, managed fund, I'm going to get this right. That managed fund, um, I think, is down a handful of percent over the past year. Whereas we look at this Vanguard fund, not chasing performance, obviously, but down about 18%. Um, I think you had a trick question on me there because I said, is this the ETF? And you've said it's not an ETF. <laughs> well, the Femex is it's a fund. <laughs> so, so change, so, we could have changed the question before it came up. Um, I, yeah, I go, gen- go. generally kind of agree because, uh, I mean, we've had a core low cost, but we've, one of the benefits of the Atchison Consulting Group we, we own as well uh, is the ability to negotiate discounts to fees. So we can actually get access as advisors to some of the active managers at a mm. cost that's much cheaper than, or not cheaper than, but closer to passive than, than what it normally would be. Yeah, right. Okay, so it turns out I wasn't quoted in the last 12 months fee uh, returns. I was quoting the last uh, three years. So for Femex over the past three years, the fund has returned 2.63%. Whereas Vanguard um, total return over that time is 0.7%. Both of them have been smoked over the past year. ETMF, Exchange Traded Managed Fund, says Rodney. That's right. I'll just try and get that into it. And we're seeing more of these things come to market too. Um, Active managers are really wanting to cash in on the exchange traded products. So we'll probably see more of this. There's so much inefficiency in China, India, Asia. So there's room for, I think, active and passive, definitely. I just think like, so this is my gripe, right? Like with the whole China Taiwan thing, I don't want to see anything happen there. Obviously, as a concerned human citizen, like I just don't want that to um, to happen. Um, but at the same time, even if that doesn't happen, 
China has shown over the past five years that it's going to bring down some of these big companies that get too powerful anyway. So like, you know, Alibaba and all that, like, I just feel like, I don't know. I, that's a very uneducated view on it. I just think that I'm quite happy just to use my US companies as an exposure into the um, the world markets, I guess. That's just yeah, I hate that. What do you if mean? If companies are going to get hit more, it's going to be the US companies operating in China rather than the Chinese companies operating in China. I agree, but <laughs> but <laughs> at least you still got something after the fact. Um, you know, like you still got a US dollar-denominated company that have, will have operations around the world. Um, then the US dollar devalues, and then you're in much bigger trouble. <laughs> true, true. Um, next question. <laughs> next question. Okay, we'll take this off here. Um, so <laughs> next question uh, from Adam from Collaroy. Is that a place? Well, there was Sausage Sizzler in there too. Oh, yeah, Sausage Sizzler. I continue to hear about Infratil. Is it, is it an infrastructure utility or healthcare company? I don't know much about this, but you did riff on this a few weeks ago. It's a conglomerate, conglomerate similar okay. to what West Farmers has been at different points. I don't think you can call it any of them, and that's why it's hard to value. That's why it's expensive. It looks expensive. Good but performer, I, though. Yeah, owns a bit of everything. Yeah. Um, so, Adam from Collaroy, after your thoughts on using geared ASX 200 and S&P 500 ETFs, gear and gigus uh, instead of using the non-geared products understood the increased fees and volatility however it seems like a great way to stretch your dollar especially if you treat the investment as at the geared value i don't see it's a good way to stretch your dollar i think that's uh i think that's you know a dangerous way to think about it you're leveraging up to three times uh, an investment that in an inherently volatile asset class already I'd say, mm. you know, broadly, these products aren't for most people. I think stockbrokers and day traders, and that's where they're, they're most widely used. Um, it's expensive because you're obviously fees on fees. Uh, and the way, I mean, the way we've seen them used successfully, you can kind of use a and p and we've, we have dabbled, probably the best way to say it, for mm. higher, you know, clients with a tolerance for higher risk would be, you know, in 2020, in 2009, when markets, you didn't know they were at the bottom, but when they'd fallen 40% and you want bang for buck, a lot of your, your portfolio has fallen, you've only got small amounts of cash, you want bang for your buck, you do it as a tactical allocation with a clear exit strategy and you try to buy the market at the bottom and then, and then sell it at some point. But I think you need clear rules on when you're going in and out of these things. Yeah, I'd say be very careful. Um just small positions. I think this is kind of like the engineering brain. It's like, well, stocks do well over the long term. We'll just times it by two. Uh, <laughs> so there's like one of the benefits of actually finding leverage outside of an ETF is actually the um, the tax deductibility of uh, yeah. uh, interest. So if you find a way to gear outside of an ETF, you can still kind of get bang for your buck, so to speak, with the... Um, I guess the, the the tax deductibility on interest. I'm not saying that you should do that. It's just a general kind of thing that we talk about on the show. Um, if you have a property, it's easier and probably cleaner to get security against the property to invest. And there's um, been periods when markets have gone nowhere or negative for a decade as well. We can't forget, you know, yes, generally yeah. markets have gone up when you look, pull right back. But there's, there could be 10, 20 years that they go sideways overall. And if that if you're doing that, well, that's a really expensive way to get 
no returns essentially yeah um, if that was the case so yeah it's like the inverse products as well those are a different beast um more suited to trading and short-term tactical bets as drew said um so at graphine kid says there has been a focus on lithium but graphite says graphene are a huge part of battery technology i've been watching telga resources for some time it's a huge potential have you considered this area would love to know your thoughts i haven't graphene um uh, kid no. i had some cobalt i think it's still sitting there i'm probably down 70 percent on it um <laughs> no <laughs> an interesting company seems to make sense and then they as like all producers they need money at different points and then the share price goes up they raise capital and they have to raise more and yeah, I think there's, I don't know enough about battery tech, so. Mm. Now, I did do a, just to fill you in and help you out a bit here, Graphine Kid, we did do a show for Self Off Live with Kanish Chug from ETF Securities a little while back. We talked about all the different players in the value chain. Maybe go check that out. It's on Self, it's on Self Off's YouTube channel. Um, a lot of these companies are still early stage. So just, we're, uh, Drew and I are going to default to, if you do it, be sensible when you do it, you know, all of those things. A lot of people think, they come to the stock market with one idea, like lithium, and they come to the stock. They make money from lithium. I saw this thing on the TV. Just be sensible um, when to how much goes into one of these things. Um, question here, very simple question, Drew, but I like these ones. Um, from this guy, this guy asks, it's like a new guy, that uh, thing on TV. Um, this guy asks, what are shortfalls in equal, equally weighted Australian ETFs? So, well, one, the fees are higher. Two, it's an active decision. So you're actively deciding to go outside the the way the ASX is structured. Uh, you're not, you know, it's equ it's equally weighted by stock, not by sector. So you're still getting the same exposure. Of, as we said last time, I think, you're getting a similar exposure to financials and materials, like 45% of the portfolio anyway. Mm. Um, the biggest shortfall would probably be that you're, you're more exposed to mid and small cap companies. But all of those things could obviously be positive now you're exposed to more growth you've got more diversity of companies you've got greater diversity of sectors so that's mm. <laughs> that's a that's not that's a non-answer isn't it yeah I should. no no no. well they asked for the shortfalls you said yeah. shortfalls are you get more small cap exposure some people don't like small cap exposure so and then because australia is so undiversified the other one was there's not a lot of exposure to future you know future growth sectors like it health and and consumer yeah um yeah the I think we both talk about the same. We're both thinking of the same ETF um, that does Which equal weight. Use it within portfolios because it's great to kind of reduce the concentration in a in a index core portfolio. Yeah, um, agreed. It gets a lot of awards. That ETF. Um, we're talking about the MVW ETF, by the way. Um, I haven't really because of, it's still got the kind of the same industry exposure, yes, different companies, which is great. So the same industry exposure doesn't really do what a lot of people think it does, which is diversify away from the banks and the financial sector. So it, it can be used to your, I think that's what you're going to say. Like it could be used that way. Um, but for me, I would want an actual small cap exposure. Like I'm a bit more of a pure exposure if that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to control it myself. Um, good ETF. No issues with it being in a core or a tactical part of a portfolio from where I sit. Final question comes from Alex. Oh, actually, there's a there's a follow up from Rodney. Yeah, uh, I miss that, miss that Rodney is always pulling me up on <laughs> he said, on what I miss. We more think, yeah, we more rebalancing with equally weighted versus market cap could lead to more capital gains being distributed. It, it can. Was, 
the, yeah. the general rebalancing rule is that it sells more of the winners and buys more of the losers. So correct, exactly right. You you may get more capital gains in your distributions than income. Yeah. So that's the and because it's also this ETF in particular, the MVW has around a hundred positions. So you're going to get more trimming of those ones that slightly go out of balance than say if you've got the Vanguard VAS ETF that has yeah. 300 positions. It can kind of let BHP ride up and down. So you're not going to get that constant churning. Um, and for people in a higher tax bracket, that's the key consideration, as Drew said before too, with the small cap exposure. Um, thanks, Rodney. So Alex is the final question that we've got to get to today, Drew. Alex says, I'm relatively new to ETFs, uh, keen to invest in the NASDAQ top 100 as it feels it has the right risk reward profile for me and my family. Um, thank you for considering that yourself, Alex. A lot of people don't put that in the question. <laughs> I was going to go with the BetaShares product, NDQ. However, at the last minute, I looked around and found the Invesco product, QQQ is the ticker symbol. I assumed they would be very uh, similar. However, BetaShares management fee is 0 0.48. I think that's, is that right? 0.48 versus the Invesco yeah. fee, which is 0 0.15. Seems like a no-brainer to go with Invesco. Is there anything else I should be considering or watching? Yeah, I think one would be QQQ is not listed in Australia. So you're buying it via an international trading platform, mm -hmm. whichever one that is. Uh, so then you've obviously got, I think they're both unhedged. So the currency isn't necessarily an issue, but you're going to have any reporting requirements, tax reporting that comes off distributions by QQQ. Mm -hmm. um, ultimately, you're buying the same thing, as you said, uh, and would generally you generally think it's cheaper to buy the, uh, a better option to buy the QQQ. But depending on your tax implications and the reporting that you have to do, holding a US stock yeah. would be the biggest challenge. For me, it's um, you actually brought up something really important in your prepared remarks here, Drew, uh, which is that when you, tra when you transfer from Aussie to US dollars, uh, so say, for example, you've got a, a tr brokerage account and you transfer the money across, a lot of those brokers offer you really crap. FX spreads. So that means that like when you transfer your money, Alex, from your Australian brokerage Rod account. Rodney's to, on it again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rodney's got it too. Um, yeah. They they charge an arm and a leg. A lot of these brokers actually make most of their money from that, from you going back and forth between currencies. They just kind of like clip the ticket as you go through. Whereas at least when you've got the Australian ETF, it's beta shares managing that, um, which is more, tends to be a lot more efficient. So, um, so the spread on Forex could be 0 0.1, 0.2 that you don't know yeah. about. Even yeah, more, that's it. essentially. Yeah. So maybe the fee is fair on that. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the added bonus of it, like not having to fill out the tax form, the WA Ben form, which is just a pesky thing you have to fill out every few years. So um, for me, I'm just quite happy. I, I said this to a lot of people. I'm just happy to own ASIC listed ETFs, happy to pay a little bit more and um, just go with that, to be honest. Uh, I think it just makes a lot of sense. Um, i got a last question for you as well. Oh, here we go. Throw it at me. What's excited you this week and what are you most worried about? Worried about? What's excited me? Investment like, markets. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, it's clarify that. Uh, no, so what's most excited me? I don't know. I feel like um, some some technology companies have actually bounced a bit this week. I don't know if you've noticed that, but particularly Australian companies have bounced a bit. Yeah. Um, and that's really interesting. Um, one of the things that obviously I said that before that I was with um, Laserbond in Sydney, and uh, that episode's not due to go live to the public um, with Wayne until, you know, a couple of weeks. But they told me that oh, the AGM's coming up and whatever. And that was due out today. And uh, they actually um, 
actually came up with the AGM today and said, I think just off the top of my head that their first quarter revenue was tracking 36% higher than last year. So that's, that's not sustainable for them, just so we know. And there's going to be costs that come into that mix through inflation in steel prices and whatever. But um, yeah, I thought that was a really promising start. So that's kind of got me really interested. I come away from that interview. Maybe it's just like the bias of management, but I come away being like, why the heck do I invest in companies that aren't founder or family run? Like, why do I even bother? Like when I can just invest with people like this. Um, so that was probably where I got a bit ahead of myself. But um, what was the other part? What are you most worried about? I'm worried that um, I'm worried about the US dollar. Actually, funnily enough, uh, we talked not about this. Not worried about getting older, or I'm losing a lot of hair very quickly. <laughs> so that's just it's probably like part of this. But um, no, I think um, I, the US dollar has ran very hard, and so a lot of my co- companies are exposed to that as a beneficiary of that, and even some of my ETFs being unhedged. So I'm actually worried about that shifting. I don't see it shifting anytime soon. Like I think just as a thumb suck, I have no skill at this. Maybe US rates go higher, which keeps the pressure on. But I just think um, that's an active yeah, thought in my mind. I could get that wrong and I could it could really reverse on me in a big way. So that's something I think about. What about you? What are you excited about? What are you worried about? Term deposits. But is that for both of those things? Or? We're meeting clients at the moment that have sold property or they've sold a business or they've got cash they want to invest. And you go, yes, there's so many things on the horizon. You've got you know, Ukraine, you've got inflation, you've got bond yields. And then you go, you compare to 15 months ago, if you mm. sold a business 15 months ago and wanted to invest it, you were getting 0.5% on-term deposits, 0.5% in government bonds, and you were buying an equity market that was at all-time highs. Now you can, you can realistically mm. put money into a term deposit and then close to four percent it's kind of happy days it's kind of yeah and then uh my yeah, the other one would be not necessarily the us dollar but you know the uh certainty with which people are forecasting at the moment you know we've seen no one can <laughs> forecast anything correctly for the last five that was a session in noosa as well <laughs> which was just a folly they brought up all the folly of forecasting the reserve yeah. bank every central bank couldn't even forecast their own policy correctly <laughs> Um, but yet we te- we tend to try and build investment strategies on you know forecasts at a certainty. Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I can get in like a lot of digital fisty cups with people over this <laughs> because like people that try and forecast macro events, it's just like I just I I, I need to stop now. <laughs> um, so like I score good, have a view, and I love hearing from people. And I love hearing diverse perspectives. Like Craig brought that to the show this week. Um, brilliant. And we've got a bunch of others that are coming up that are different again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, there's something. there are some things you can control. A term deposit that you lock in is one of those things. Um, so I feel like that's, that's really, um, really interesting. Hey, it's, as Eddie's just popped up and said, I have a different view on founder-led companies. I do agree they tend to be better as a group, but I think they stagnate in performance. Uh, Changing them to someone new with new ideas is really hard, but yeah, I guess it depends as well on the industry. Agreed, like it does. That's why um, Zeddy mentioned the risk of a CEO having 65% of a company. We saw this with Mark Zuckerberg in the United States. He doesn't own 65% of Meta, but he has the the different class of shares. So that gave him like a lot of sway. Um, And yeah, so that's, that's an issue. You kind of like, ride or die kind of with the the insiders and that, at that point so um yeah it's really interesting drew that 
yeah, the folly of forecasting. I mean, it happens all across the spectrum, whether you're bottom up or top down. So um, we're not going to make any forecasts other than this one. I will be appearing at the Australian Shareholders Association uh, in October. If you want to get um, a pass to the Australian Shareholders Association virtual summit, I think it's only 60 bucks or so. Um, huge, huge lineup. I am definitely the odd one out. Um, so if you want to come along, I'm doing a talk on ETFs. Will you be wearing your Hawaiian shirt again? Hawaiian shirt. That would be very much appropriate, I'd imagine, with the Australian Shareholders Association crowd. Um, I doubt it, but I'll probably try and wear a shirt of some description. But if you want to come along, there will be a link in the show notes. So please check it out. Um, the guys at the Australian Shareholders Association do a great job. In the meantime, Drew, thanks for joining me. We'll be back next week with Two Cents. Ask your questions on the RASC websites. Get in touch with Drew, modelpartners.com.au forward slash contact. Brilliant financial planner based out of Melbourne. Services clients across the country with partner in crime and partner in advice, Jamie Nemesis. So, mate, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me again. And thanks for everyone that tuned in live. Really appreciate the follow-up. Uh, we'll see you next week. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.